Genesis chapter 6. It came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them to be their wives. And the Lord said, My spirit will not always strive with man, and that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Genesis 6, 1 through 3. So we're coming now to a time in which God is going to drastically alter man's lifespan. By the time they were getting 900 years old, they were getting very wicked. God said, I'm not going to leave them around that long. Cut them down to 120 years. So drastic altering after the flood of man's lifespan which could easily be explained by the loss of the protective blanket around the earth, allowing much greater cosmic radiation, which causes the mutation of the cells, which causes the aging process in man. There's no way by which you can protect yourself from these little neutrinos, these little cosmic rays that bombard the earth and pass right through the thing like it wasn't even there. The earth is under this constant bombardment. Actually, we are protected much by our atmosphere. There is a certain danger to too much high altitude flying. You get above the protective blanket and your ultraviolet ray radiation gets much greater in that the airlines have found that they can only, you can say pilots really have it made, you know, they only fly once a week. And that's all because of the fact that it is a hazardous thing. You're getting up above much of our protective blanket when you get up to 38, 39,000 feet. And so they limit their exposure. We're learning more and more about that every day. Who are the sons of God, though? Now, there are those who will make the sons of God the descendants of Shem. So they are Shemites, say some. The daughters of men were the Cainites, the descendants of Cain, according to the theory. And that the godly line of Shem began to intermarry with the ungodly line of Cain. And that the product, and it's hard to explain how the product was giants, but that's the theory. The term sons of God in the Old Testament is used elsewhere, but only of angels, never of man. In Job, the sons of God were presenting themselves to God, and Satan also came with them, angels. It would appear that these are angels here in Genesis, that they actually began to intermingle and intermarry. And you say, oh, wait a minute. Jesus said the angels neither marry nor are given in marriage in heaven. That is true. But Jesus did not say that they were sexless. He just said there was no marriage, nor were they given in marriage. And it is interesting that always angels are referred to in a masculine form. There are difficulties with this verse. If you try to make it the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain, there are also difficulties if you try to make it angels intermarrying with man. But in verse 4, there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were which of old, men of renown, Genesis 6-4. Some kind of a super race of giant men as a result of this. In the New Testament, we read that those angels, which kept not their first estate, are reserved in the chains of Tartarus, awaiting the day of judgment, Jude 1.6. It seems that there were certain angels, perhaps, that did not keep the first principle or first estate. Maybe they were these angels who came down and began to intermingle and intermarry with men. There are a lot of interesting things we don't know all of them the answers to, 
And this is one of them. And God said that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and the eyes and that every imagination and the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Genesis 6, 5 through 7. Now, whenever we get to this statement that it repented God, we find that it is, again, a difficult statement to handle because the scripture clearly teaches that God is not a man, that he should repent or that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent, Numbers 23, 19. In other words, God, being omniscient, knew from the beginning what was going to be then what does this scripture mean? It repented God. And God said, I, well, you know, I'm sorry that I made man, that it repented him, that it repented God that he had made man. It is extremely difficult to talk about God in human terms because we are limited to human terminology. Therefore, are certain actions of God that I must describe, but how am I going to describe them except with language that we understand? So this is one of those areas where you run into the difficulty because you're trying to explain an action of God. But the only words that you have to explain that action are words that are significant to man, but not all in the category of God. So trying to explain it in a way that man would understand from the human level, this action of God, I am bound to the human terms, and thus I attribute unto God a human capacity, though in reality the repentance of God is not at all as I would repent or would be sorry for a thing. But I cannot understand the action of God because his ways are above my ways and beyond my finding out, Romans 11.33. So God knew from the beginning all things. God knew that men would be corrupted. God knew that there would be violence. God knew that men would bring self-destruction upon himself, and so we describe the action of God in human terms. But yet, the scripture declares that God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. But I have no other words to describe the action of God, so I describe it in the human term, though it is not at all repentance as man would turn or man would change. God said, Behold, I am the Lord God, I change not. Malachi 3.6. He doesn't have to change. He is God. So God declares his destruction of the earth. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just and perfect man in his generations. And Noah walked with God. Gen Genesis 6, 8 through 9. In the midst of an evil and corrupt world, with the wickedness and the corruption and every imagination of thoughts of man's heart, evil continually... There is one man down on earth walking in harmony with God, in fellowship with God. Noah walked with God. What a testimony. What a witness. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked upon the earth. Behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make you an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and thou shalt pitch it or cover it within and without with pitch. And this is a fashion, fashion 
which you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. Genesis 6, 11 through 15. Now a cubit is about 18 inches, which means that this ark was 450 feet long, 150 feet wide, and 45 feet tall. It was to be three stories, 15 feet each. It's a pretty big boat, really. It has a cubic footage of about 1,400,000 cubic feet, equivalent to about 522 cattle cars of a train. So if you had train, so if you had a train with 522 cattle cars, you could carry quite a few animals. The ark was no just little boat. It was something like man had never seen up to that point. It is interesting that it is six times as long as it is wide, which of course we have discovered today as the ideal ratio for a ship, its length to its width. And most of our Navy ships are just about the same ratio, about six times to our 450 by 75, or about six to one. Now, a lot of times people have difficulty with this story of the flood, the story of the ark, the story of the animals coming in, the story of the preservation of man and animals, but there have been some excellent books written on the subject. Dr. Whitcam and Dr. Morris have combined together in a book called The Genesis Flood, which is perhaps one of the most scholarly of all of the books that have been written on this subject. But there has been of late recent interest in the flood and in the ark because there are continuing reports of a large ship encased in the ice on Mount Ararat. And these go back to the time of Marco Polo, who reports this great boat up there in the ice, as the people in the area talk about it. In 1917, there is a report of a Russian flyer who spotted in a particularly hot and long summer as he was flying in the area of Mount Ararat. He spotted this great boat down there in the ice. According to his story, an expedition was formed, and at the time they were coming out with the evidence was when the Bolshevik Revolution took over and all, and the evidence was destroyed. This flyer later came to Canada and told a story which caused others to find and try to locate the boat. And one of these being a French explorer by the name of Navarro, who has brought back wood from this object that he found high above the timberline encased in the ice and described it in his book, Noah's Ark, I Touched It, by Francis Navarro. There are attempts at expeditions now, but the Turkish government, being Muslim, has really not allowed any recent kind of expeditions. There are men of science who would like to go up and settle the issue once and for all, but the Turkish government right now is opposed to it. Even as the government of Syria has been reluctant to allow any more excavations where they found the Ebla tablets, because if the Ebla tablets providing the fact that Abraham did exist, David did exist and so forth, and they're upset with this because it does give to the Israelis a claim and a right to the land. And so the Syrian government has asked them not to do any more excavations in the area of the Ebla tablets and are cutting off any further scientific expeditions there because of the adverse effect upon it. And it's also a Muslim state. And if the Ark could be discover, discovered, then of course it would create an interesting problem for the scientists is how did that boat get there so high? How did they carry the lumber up there to build it? And the whole thing, it would be, of course, very interesting. And Jesus said, blessed are they who see and believe. 
more blessed are they who believe without seeing. John 20, 29. And if it would take the ark's discovery to make a believer out of you, I feel sorry for you. But I hope that they will discover it so that you will become a believer. But there is other interesting evidence that the world did experience a worldwide flood. Of course, the idea of a worldwide flood is opposed to the evolutionary theory upon which, well, quite frankly, Darwin based his theory. And it is interesting that scientists are not always honest. In fact, there's a lot of dishonesty in the scientific field. They like to come off as men of science, but most of them have certain theories that have sworn that they have sworn by, and thus to change would be to discredit themselves, and their pride just won't allow them to do that. And anyone who says anything other than what they have already accepted as fact, any evidence that is brought forth, that would destroy one of their theories that they accept as scientific fact. They immediately reject it and crucify the individual and reject his work. Emmanuel Vilikovsky first came out with his book, Worlds in Collision, and it was first published by Macmillan. Now, Macmillan publishes a lot of school textbooks, and the professors were so angry at the fact that Emmanuel Vilikovsky came out with this book, Worlds in Collision, showing the impossibility of uniformitarianism, disproving it that they raised such a ruckus that Macmillan Company had to quit publishing the book. And Doubleday picked up the rights and began to publish it, but they were determined to not allow the book to come to the public. And when it was discovered to the public, there was a great fervor and a quick reaction of the things that he said before the book was ever published. Before people had full copies of the book, they were already writing rebuttals, not even knowing for sure what he had said. Scientists, just they're not honest. When it comes to uh, destroying one of their little pet theories, they will lie, they will connive, and they will do anything in order to keep their theory alive. And their pet theory is that man exists by an evolutionary process. And the reason why they love that theory so much is because it is able to exclude God from the system. And anxious to exclude God from their system, they say tenaciously, religiously, hold to the evolutionary theory. Though much evidence is being uncovered, that would really make the theory quite incredible. Emmanuel Vilikovsky has written a new book. Now, he wrote it quite a few years ago, but Earth in Upheaval. Now, let me say this concerning Emmanuel Vilikovsky. Number one, he doesn't really believe that the Bible is the Word of God. In fact, there are parts of the Bible that he completely rejects. He's not a Christian. He's a Jewish scientist. But he looks at the Bible as a history book, and he takes the things that happened or that the Bible declares happens, and he seeks to use them as historic facts to prove his theory, which is that the planet Venus was introduced to our solar system and became fixed in its own orbit at about the time of Joshua. And the long day of Joshua is explained by this near pass of the planet Venus that the plagues in Egypt at the time of Moses are explained by an earlier pass of the planet Venus. That there were several passes until it became fixed, fixed in its own orbit around the sun. There were several near misses, and that there was a change in the orbital pattern of Mars and Venus, and that Venus was introduced actually into our planetary solar system within the last 5,000 years, causing major upheavals upon the Earth. 
Now, that's his theory, and he seeks to prove his theory. But in doing so, he, met, he amasses a great deal of evidence. But some of this evidence that he has amassed is very interesting to me. For instance, in his book, Earth in Upheaval, he tells about the bones of whales that have been found 440 feet above sea level north of Lake Ontario. A skeleton of another whale was discovered in Vermont more than 500 feet above sea level, sea level, and still another in Montreal, Quebec, about 600 feet above sea level. The skeletons of whales. Now, people don't carry the carcass of a whale 500 feet up the mountain and several miles from the ocean, so the question is, how did the whales get there? Now, he has his own theory of the upper, you know, the thrusting upward of mountain ranges and that what is he seeking to prove in the book Earth's and Upheaval is that the mountain ranges have all been thrust upward in very recent history. I mean, you talk about recent history, you're talking about in something less than 7,000 years. But rather than the mountains being thrust upward, what about the water being thrust upwards and covering the area and the whales swimming there until the waters receded and happened to get caught and was left floundering as the waters receded off of the face of the earth? That's just as plausible as his upward thrust theory, and it's, it's a little more scriptural. He also points out that Joseph Prestwich, the professor of geology at Oxford from 1874 to 1888, an acknowledged authority in the Quaternary Glaciate, recent age in England was struck by a numerous phenomenon, all of which led him to the belief that the south of England, that the south of England had been emerged submerged to a depth of not less than a thousand feet between the glacial and post-glacial eras, or in the recent Neolithic late stone period. In a spasmodic movement of terrain, the coast and the land masses in southern England were submerged to, a, to such a depth that points to a thousand feet high were below sea level in England. And then they show or they talk about how they found these cliffs in the various strata, various widths, and with the bones of animals, mammoth, hippopotamus, rhinoceros, horse, polar bear, bison. The bones are broken into innumerable fragments. No skeleton is found entire. The separate bones, in fact, have been dispersed in the most irregular manner and without any bearing to the relative position in the skeleton. Neither did they show any wear nor have they been gnawed by, by beast of prey, though they occur with the bones of hyena, wolf, bear, and lion. In other places, in Devonshire and Pembroke in Wales, the ossiferous breccia, or the conglomerates of broken bones and stones in the fissures and limestones, consist of angular rock fragments and broken and splintered bones with sharp fractured edges and a fresh state and in splendid condition, showing no traces of nine. And it tells us about, in there are so many areas around the world where in caves or in cliffs or in fissures, they have found these bones, like they have been thrown in the various animals, which are actually predatory to each other, but thrown in at the same time, smashed and then covered with silt, as if by some violent tidal wave action or force submerged to a thousand feet. Now, you might again use that to prove an upward thrust theory, but it would also prove very interesting proof of a violent flood, which is the opinion I opt for. Now, it goes on to tell about the 
covered Cumberland Cavern in Maine or Maryland, when workmen were cutting the way for a railroad with dynamite and a steam shovel came upon a cavern or a closed fissure with a peculiar assemblage of animals. Many of the species are comparable to forms now living in the vicinity of the, of the cave, but others are distinctly northern in their affinities and some are related to species peculiar to the southern or lower astral region. Thus wrote J.W. Gidley and C.L. Gaston of the United States National Museum, a crocodile and taper are representative of the southern climate. A wolf or lemming are distinctly northern, and it seems highly improbable that they coexisted in one place. The usual assumption was made that the cave received the animal remains in a glacial and interglacial period. However, the scientists to explore the cavern for the Smithsonian Institute, as soon as it was discovered, and to return there the following years for closer investigation, J.W. Gidley contended that the animals were contemporaneous, that is, they lived at the same time. The position of the bones excluded any other explanation. This strange assemblage of fossils remains occurs hopelessly intermingled. Now, of course, the climatic condition prior to the flood was different around the earth. The animals could have been commingling and existing together in the same area, thrown in by violent force of the flood. The great waters of the deep being broke and thrown in and broke the bones, broke and then covered them there in the cavern with silt. Now, one further thing in the book is he talks about the Himalayas. Scientists of the 19th century uh, century were dismayed to find that as high as they climbed in the Himalayas, the rocks of the mast of the mass siths yield skeletons of marine animals, fish that swim in the ocean, and the shells of mollusks. This was evidence that the Himalayas had risen from beneath the sea, or evidence that the Himalayans were once covered by water. Same thing down in South America, there in the Andean Mountains, and so forth. All evidence that at one time everything was covered by water. So God has left evidence. Men are misinterpreting quite often the evidence that God has left. But there is not one good reason to believe other than these remains were left by a great flood, that these areas were indeed covered with water that covered the earth unto 15 feet above the highest mountains, just like the scriptures declare. You might pick up this little book, Earth in Upheaval by Velikovsky. It contains and certainly destroys the theory of uniformitarianism and shows the real documentation of cataclysmic changes in the earth. Also, I was intrigued by his books, World in Collision, and I find it very, very interesting. There are many evidences of a great flood. There are some areas where the silt deposits are so thick, hundreds of feet thick, and for silt to be de deposited in such a thick deposit would necessitate several thousand feet of water for silt deposit that large. Now the evolutionists seek to use the geological column as the basis of proof for the evolutionary theory. There are many problems with the use of the geological column as the basis of proof for the evolutionary theory, not the least of which being the fact that the geological columns are totally lacking in any evidence of any transition forms from one species to another. Not one single evidence of a transitional form of species, which of course is a vital part of the evolutionary theory. But this lack of evidence in the geological column of any transitory form of species 
causes a professor at Stanford University to come up with a hopeful monster theory to prove the change or to explain the changes of species for which the geological column is so absolutely silent. And so according to the hopeful monster theory, the snake laid its eggs in the sand and then they hatched and the birds flew out. He may call it the hopeful monster theory, but as far as I'm concerned, it's for the birds because you've had to have two birds flying out in order the thing might continue a new chain and develop a new species. The geological column is interesting. Of course, it's a thing that is involved in circular reasoning for how do they age? How do they date the various geological formations? They age them by the type of fossil found in it. Now, who, how do they age the fossils found in the various formations? The fossils are aged by the type of formation they are found in. In other words, there is no accurate way of aging. They are dated upon the assumption of the truth of the evolutionary theory that all things have evolved from a lesser form to a higher form. But there are areas where there is a total reversal of the geological column, where some of the older columns are over the top of the new for several hundred and in some places several thousand square miles. And so they have developed, of course, they're never a loss for an idea or a theory, and they developed this whole flip-flop pancake theory that somehow the whole thing got flipped over seven, several thousand miles, just square miles flipped over, inverting the columns. Of course, how one tree was able to grow through several of the various forms of these, of the geological column rocks and so forth, covering hundreds of millions of years, is a little bit harder for them to explain. But if you believe in the flood, you have no problem with the geological column at all. Everything was made after its own species, just like God said. Now, it would stand to reason that the low-order form of life would be the first that would be lost in the flood and drowned at the lower levels. And as the sediment would build up, you would have the higher forms of life, some that would be able to get higher on the cliff or be able to swim maybe a, a bit and, and would be planted a little higher. So the more complex forms would be higher in the geological column, but all of them being placed there by the flood. And the flood really is a far more plausible explanation of the geological column and is in total harmony with the model that you would set by creation of God, species after their own kind and all, because they would not expect to have any transitional forms between species. So the flood itself gives to us very plausible explanation of the whole geological column. And the geological column actually, again, a proof that the flood did exist. But Peter, though he wrote 2,000 years ago, seemed to nail the thing right on the head, for he said, in the last days, scoffers would come saying, where is the promise of his coming? For all things continue from the beginning since our fathers have fallen asleep. Second Peter 3.3. 3. That's the doctrine or the theory of uniformitarianism. Everything is continuing as it was from the beginning. So Peter foresaw this theory of uniformitarianism by the scoffers who would be mocking at the Bible and the promises of the coming of Jesus Christ. All, thing con all things continue just as they were from the beginning. Peter said they would be saying or the doctrine of the theory of uniformitarianism. But Peter said, of course, they're willingly ignorant that God destroyed the world with a flood, 2 Peter 3, 5. The one thing that would account for all the evidences they're willingly ignorant of that fact. Peter nailed it in a way, way in advance, foreseeing it by the Spirit of God, 
So again, the Bible is well ahead of man. So God gave to Noah the dimensions of the ark. Now, it was to have a window of about 18 inches. And I feel that this window was all the way around the top. In other words, there was this opening all the way around the top to give air and ventilation. Of course, man with all those animals for that much time, well, you'd really want to ventilate it to some extent. And so, 18 inches. A cubit shall you finish it above, and the door of the ark you shall set in the side. With the lower, second, and third stories, you will make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. From under heaven and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee I will establish my covenant. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife, and your son's wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shall you bring into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the fowls after their kind, the cattle after their kind, the creeping things of the earth after his kind. Two of every sort shall come into the ark to keep them alive and take you all of the food that is needed to be eaten, and you shall gather it. And that shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So did he. Genesis 6, 16 through 22. Now, of course, when Noah brought them in, and it was all after their kind, in other words, he didn't have to bring in a dachshund and a collie and a spaniel and a samoyeds and all different kinds. He could bring in one pair of dogs. And there are mutant strains that do exist. And there's definitely evolutionary processes that take place on a horizontal plane within a family, within a species. There are the changes, the mutant changes, that can take place within any species. So he didn't have to bring in all kinds of cats, Persian, Siamese, etc. Just one pair of cats would do. And so the variations that have come within species, well, there's no problem with that. So the ark, you know, wouldn't have been to bring one of every variety within a species, just the major species head for each species that he brought in and allowing evolutionary changes within that species. Where you cannot find evidence for evolutionary changes is in the vertical, the transition from one species to another. That's where the evidence is lacking. Sure, you can show that a monkey at one period had, you know, 18 teeth, and another, and during the different periods, you know, there were mutant strains and so forth, and more teeth and less teeth, etc. Changes of facial parts and so forth. Sure, you can have mutants in a horizontal change, but you don't have vertical changes from one species to another. And this, of course, is where the theory of evolution fails in proof of any transitional forms in changing from one species to another species.